Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the major infrastructure investment plan proposed by the Biden administration, progressive perspectives arguing to make it better, and the need to democratize the institutions that constitute our infrastructure. Plus, at the end, I'm going to explain the paradigm shift in Fox News disinformation that I finally just figured out. And now, clips today are from The Bradcast, The Brian Lehrer Show, Jim Hightower's Radio Lowdown, This Is Hell, Counterspin, and Economic Update with Richard Wolff. President Biden is rolling out an approximately $2 trillion plan focused on infrastructure and the climate as a blueprint for his vision to reshape the U.S. economy, which he is calling the American Jobs Plan. Probably a smart way to take the word climate out of the title so as not to trigger Fox News snowflakes, uh, take uh, infrastructure out of it, which, you know, puts some people to sleep. Uh, And also, the American Jobs Plan echoes the name of his so far wildly popular and surprisingly progressive $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan signed into law in March for COVID pandemic relief and stimulus after being passed in both houses of Congress without a single Republican vote. The American Jobs Plan, formerly introduced in Pittsburgh on Wednesday, but previewed to journalists on Tuesday night, aims to tackle some of the nation's most pressing problems from climate change to decaying water systems to the nation's crumbling infrastructure, according to The Washington Post today. The administration's promises are vast and may prove difficult to enact, the Post notes, even if the effort can get through Democrats' extremely narrow majority in Congress, where the measure may need to be passed under Senate budget reconciliation rules, allowing for a simple majority vote that doesn't require overcoming a GOP filibuster, even though Republicans in recent years have at least pretended they were interested in infrastructure investment. The sweeping plan says that it will enable drivers across the country to find electric charging stations for their vehicles on the road. Every lead pipe in the country would be replaced. All Americans would have access to high-speed Internet broadband by the end of the decade. And as many as 2 million homes and housing units would be built, retrofitted, or renovated. It includes a slew of tax hikes on businesses and, according to the White House, would pay for itself over 15 years. On the tax side, Biden's plan includes raising the corporate tax rate from 21 to 28 percent, increasing the global minimum tax paid from about 13 percent to 21 percent. And I believe what that means is that while corporate tax rates are increased, the existing loopholes in the tax code would be plugged up enough that businesses would still have to pay at least 21 percent no matter what. But I will ask my guest to explain that momentarily. Uh, it would also end federal tax breaks for fossil fuel companies. Finally, while proposing as much as 400 billion in clean energy credits. 
The tax measure uh, help uh, the tax measures help Biden address concerns that his spending package would add to an already large federal deficit. But the Post reports they are likely to provoke a torrent of opposition from lobbyists and business groups who celebrated Donald Trump's 2017 tax cuts. Well, of course they will. Too bad. I'm sure they enjoyed all that free money at the rest of our expenses while it lasted. Congressional Republicans naturally are panning the tax increases as damaging to U.S. investment and competitiveness. They pledge to oppose them, of course. While opening the door for negotiations over the details with Congress, the White House is adamant about the need for a sweeping economic program that goes beyond immediate coronavirus relief. It cites the threat posed by climate change, the deterioration of America's infrastructure and the long decline of U.S. manufacturing. Here's White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki on Tuesday. He sees, um, you know, clean energy and clean energy jobs as central to his own vision and his own objectives. It's about jobs. It's about investing in the industries of the future. Uh, and it's about uh, rebuilding parts of our communities that have uh, long been uh, forgotten. Joe Biden's plan devotes more than $600 billion to rebuilding America's infrastructure, such as ports, railway, railways, bridges, highways, about $300 billion to support domestic manufacturing, more than $200 billion in housing infrastructure. Other measures include at least $100 billion for a variety of priorities, including uh, creating national broadband, modernizing the electric power grid. Upgrading schools and educational facilities, investing in research and development projects, and ensuring America's drinking water is safe. Oh, I object to that. Biden's plan also includes measures unrelated to either infrastructure or the uh, climate, such as about $400 billion investment in home care, uh, home-based care for the elderly and disabled. That was a top demand of some union groups as well. The plan calls for passage of the Protecting the Right to Organize Act. We've talked about that on the show, the PRO Act, aimed at significantly strengthening workers' rights to organize. It includes $100 billion to bolster the country's electric grid and phase out fossil fuels. It also asks Congress to adopt an energy efficiency and clean electricity standard. That would set specific targets to cut how much coal and gas-fired electri electricity power companies may use over time as part of Biden's plan to make the power sector carbon-free by 2035 and as one of his top climate spending priorities. Invest about $174 billion in the electric vehicle market to uh, along with uh, federal incentives for manufacturing and purchasing such cars to establish a national network of 500,000 charging stations by 2030. The plan would also replace 50,000 diesel trucks while electrifying at least 20 percent of the classic yellow bus fleet that transports children to and from school each day, to which I say only 20 percent. In an effort to transition fossil fuel workers to other jobs, Biden plans to devote $16 billion to employing Americans to plug abandoned oil and gas wells and restore land that has been used for coal and 
uh, mining. That would be nice. In his news conference last week, as we noted on the show yesterday, the president said that the workers would earn as much as much money sealing those wells that are leaking methane as they would in drilling them. Also, another $10 billion would fund the establishment of a new civilian climate corps, which would employ people to restore landscapes and help prepare communities for global warming's effects. The president also asks Congress to provide $45 billion to replace the remaining lead pipes across the country, while reducing lead exposure in some 400,000 schools and child care facilities. I'll look forward to the Republicans opposing that. There is much more here, but you get the idea. And, of course, the package will change once Congress begins its own work on it. Among Democrats, the plan has already been met with objections from lawmakers in the Congressional Progressive Caucus who say it's insufficient to meet the scale of the threat posed by climate change. Meanwhile, conservative Democrats are reportedly balking at another large spending package. Three House Democrats have already vowed to oppose it because it does not reverse a cap on state and local tax deductions from Trump's 2017 tax law that hurt a lot of homeowners in high-tax states like California and New York. Reversing those caps, however, would also lower federal revenue and thus increase the price of the bill. So how much is Biden laying out a restructuring of the economy or a redistribution of wealth after decades of it being redistributed from most people to the top few percent? That's definitely part of this plan. It's interesting how under the infrastructure umbrella, Biden has really found a way to touch on a number of his broader priorities, and one of them being a more redistributive redistributive tax policy um, and redistributing wealth and tackling income inequality. And I actually think we will continue to see him address that through the second part of this plan that we expect to be rolled out in a couple of weeks that will include more pay-fors and we expect other sorts of tax hikes as well. This one focuses just on corporate tax hikes. And so that's how he'll pay for this. They say, even though they're spending the money over eight years, they will get it back through revenue raisers over 15. So not exactly a equal 10-year um, plan as we're used to seeing, but over 15 years, at least it would raise the money back by raising uh, taxes on corporations. And, you know, it's a way of, of you know, finding something that at least most Democrats, if not all Democrats, should be able to rally around. And it touches on that priority that he just spoke about, about, you know, as you said, casting shade on Wall Street and making sure the biggest companies pay their fair share, as he says. Politically, do you think he's going after the white working class and white middle class, um, part of which is a very Republican constituency, by offering something and coupling it with a certain kind of sense of grievance you know, against Wall Street and the top few percent? Because let's face it, Trump got elected partly on running to a white working class on grievance against elites. And the Democrats do it too. They do it in their way. They do. It's an interesting question and a really interesting point and something that I think we'll see become a theme throughout Biden's term. Um, You know, in some ways, this is a way that he can look to try to win back some of those Trump voters, people who had been Democrats their entire life, the blue collar workers who then found something in Trump that resonated with them and and switched parties that way. Um, At the same time, this is also 
something that Joe Biden has really, you know, championed his entire career in terms of blue collar workers, pro union, you know, he's a little Joe from Scranton, then he went to Pittsburgh yesterday for this speech. So he's, he's clearly really trying to amp up that theme. And, and, um, you know, the other aspect too, is that the White House in designing this plan did it in a pretty shrewd way, in where they're clearly looking for bipartisanship here. So most of the things that are going to be Many of the things that are going to be the most controversial, I should say, are saved for that second plan. And that's, you know, tax hikes on individuals, that's investments more in the what they're calling a care infrastructure, where, you know, there's some pushback that it's not quite infrastructure. There's some of that in this first plan, but much of it is is saved for roads and bridges and transit, that physical infrastructure, it's broadband access, it's access to clean water. And so these are sort of the things where they're really hoping for bipartisanship, at least from some moderate Republicans or from those white working class voters, as you mentioned, who are probably, or at least the White House hopes they will look at this plan and say, I agree that we should have more roads and bridges. I agree that the biggest companies should pay more in taxes. And so there's there's a lot to like here. We have people like Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, as you quote in your article, and others uh, on the left saying that the Biden infrastructure bill doesn't go far enough in terms of size. What do they want? They want much more in terms of investment. And a big focus for Ocasio-Cortez and others are is on climate, that um, many of these climate groups have been requesting or suggesting $10 trillion in spending over 10 years on climate alone. This Biden plan that encompasses some climate uh, investments as well is just over $2 trillion over eight years. So it's not even close to what they've been uh, asking for. Other groups have a smaller ask, but they want about $4 trillion on climate and labor over four years. So of course, everybody just wants more money here. And one of the reasons that this has become such a flashpoint and there's been so much lobbying and and so much emphasis and and focus on making sure that different priorities are reflected and reflected adequately here is that there's there's widespread concern and, and sort of the conventional wisdom in Washington is that the Democrats will only get one more chance this year to pass a bill through reconciliation, meaning they don't need Republican votes, um, and that because of how tightly uh how narrow the Democrats' majorities are, they only have three votes to lose in the House and none in the Senate, that because of the way things are, those political dynamics, they won't get another chance after that to pass possibly anything else before the midterms when the incumbent president's party tends to not do so well. So Democrats feel like they only have possibly one more shot to get anything done in this Congress. And so everybody really wants to pile on and make sure their priorities are reflected. And also on the climate aspects of the bill, you note that it includes a call to end fossil fuel subsidies. Do we as taxpayers still subsidize the mega profitable fossil fuel companies? We do. It's one of the things that progressive Democrats in particular have been calling for for so long that now they're they're labeling it often the bare minimum. Like the least we can do is stop subsidizing these companies. And that is something that Biden's proposing to do in this plan. It's obviously such a, a flashpoint because um, it really angers oil and gas companies and, and lawmakers who are close with those companies will, of course, maybe have a hard time voting for something that ends those subsidies and close other loopholes and so forth that they benefit from. So it will be interesting to see if that becomes sort of a flashpoint or a central point of debate on Capitol Hill. It's time for America to go back to the future. 
future of true greatness created by people united to build a strong nation for the common good. From the start of our United States, Americans have backed leaders who dared to do big public projects. Jefferson, Lincoln, T.R., FDR, Truman, Ike, JFK, and LBJ all dared to achieve bold goals. It's only since Ronald Reagan's government is evil demagoguery that our presidents and lawmakers shrivel to no-can-do mediocrities, unwilling even to try tackling America's big needs or invest in our people's unlimited possibilities. Their failure is why our nation's infrastructure, once world-class, has deteriorated to an embarrassing 16th in the world. It's hard to muster any national pride in chanting, We're number 16! But surprise, here comes Joe, a lifelong go-slow Democrat, unexpectedly proposing a get-serious, roll-up-our-sleeves, $2 trillion package of investments to modernize and extend America's collapsing infrastructure. In addition to roads, bridges, and dams, it gives a long-overdue boost to such needs as rural high-speed broadband and providing affordable child care facilities, all geared to creating good union jobs and lifting local economies. Even more transformative is Biden's back-to-the-future method of paying for this Rebuild America agenda by returning to progressive taxation. Instead of the same old no-tax, laissez-faire extremism that Washington has practiced for 40 years, Biden will at long last demand that multinational corporate behemoths stop dodging their tax obligations to America. It's the same fair tax policy that funded our nation's real needs in the past, while also increasing productivity and raising living standards for millions of working families. This is Jim Hightower saying, let's do it again. I've been suggesting a new show recently. It's called Unfucking the Republic. Today, though, I'm a little conflicted, to be honest. For context, Unfucking the Republic is a no-holds-barred, no-profanity-beeped, balls-to-the-wall rocket ship of progressive perspective. So you will understand my confusion and concern when just this week they were promoted in a list of podcasts by the New York motherfucking times. I have so many questions. First, how did they get snuck into a list among a bunch of other relatively milquetoast liberal centrism? I have no idea. I'm guessing they've got an editor over at the paper sleeping on the job. Secondly, how did that writer hear about the show? The truth is, it's a brand new show, and I'm pretty much the only person advertising it right now, which leads me to wonder... If we have a writer for the New York Times who was thinking about writing an article about podcasts, who listens to this show? If so, I mean, what the f***? I've only been over here quietly documenting and archiving the mood of the progressive movement for three quarters of a generation. Oh, wait, no, no, no. I, actually, I know what it is. In my last ad for them, I not so subtly intimated that the host of Unfucking the Republic wanted to sleep with Nancy Reagan. Now, it was a joke, but that might have been what got the Times' attention. Oh, a progressive who loves Nancy Reagan? Add him to the list. Either way, don't hold it against them. I mean, the Times even went out of their way to highlight the episode about the genocide against the native peoples, so you know the show doesn't pull its punches. Check out Unfucking the Republic wherever you get your podcasts by searching for UNFTR or by clicking through on the link in our show notes. 
So it appears our infrastructures are not prepared for crisis. So what does that reveal to you about our infrastructures when they are not prepared for a crisis, whether it's global warming or the pandemic? Well, it tells me several things. I mean, the first thing that it tells me is that there there has been, uh, because of this uh, devaluation of the public in favor of the private, the public investments in the kinds of public goods that everybody can use um, has uh, fallen precipitously. And that means that even existing infrastructures are not being repaired in ways that are uh, that, that are useful, that, that may, allows them to continue on um, for uh, for other generations. Um, so that's that's one thing. That's, uh, there has been a drop in public investments. But I think there has been also other things. Um, when the, when you allow for infrastructures uh, to be built in order for private firms to benefit um, and that in this uh, thinking, we are not taking account of the public who uses it uh, or, or the public who lives near the infrastructure, um, we end up uh, essentially saying that those people who might, who the infrastructure might act to the detriment of have no say in this. So if one example that I can give for this are the various pipelines that are built across the U.S. Midwest that are often going through indigenous Americans' um, nations and uh, Native American nations, and those pipelines uh, could leak. They could they could have uh, leakages of essentially uh, tar. Uh, oil into uh, extremely sensitive water systems. Uh, they they could and and they essentially also create securitized zones around those pipelines as they're going. As I said, through for example, Na- Native American nations. So on the one hand, the pipelines make really good money for that. Some of them come from Alberta. Some of them come come from uh, the Dakotas. Make very good money for the fracking uh, companies or for the shale oil companies. The, the, of course, now the um, the, the Keystone pipeline has now been uh, stopped by Biden, but for a time it was going to make money for you know firms in Alberta, um, whereas the Native Americans who were going to be living near the pipelines, their life, life, life and livelihoods were going to be destroyed. And then, of course, there's the larger effect of that, which is that once that oil was brought in to the refineries on the Gulf Coast of the U.S., um, then it was also going to be producing all sorts of emissions that were going to affect not only the people along the route of the pipeline, but elsewhere in the world. So that that consideration is also a really important one. And finally, the final consideration is, I think that last bit, which is that not only immediate, not not only people in the immediate vicinities of infrastructures, but people very far away are affected by this. We need to start start thinking about um, our communities that are affected by these infrastructures as being. Yes, the people near us, but also a global community. So when we're thinking about uh, redundancy in our electric systems, it might behoove us to consider that perhaps the ch- a cheaper option of, let's say, using natural gas or um, oil may not be in the long term a better decision for the planet as sustainable forms of electricity production would be. It might behoove us to think about uh, retiring hydrocarbon fuels uh, since they seem to be at the root of so much uh, so much climate change. It might behoove us to think that if we are producing, for example, electricity, that its distribution should be cooperative, that it should be much more equal, that perhaps it should not be privatized in order for the people who are benefiting from it not having to pay um, over-the-top prices for it. So there's a whole lot of considerations that need to be taken into account when we're thinking about infrastructures.
So do you think that the privatized infrastructure system and service, do you think they could survive democratization? Do they need to <laughs> not have a democratized system in order to exist? I th I think that is absolutely right. I think that you need a transformation in the ways in which uh, we, the people, control our economies. And, and I think that should the systems be democratized and the, the profit motive will, will have, to, you know, it, it essentially challenges the profit motive as the primary use um, and as the primary me uh, reason for infrastructures. And so I think that in some ways, uh, uh, in this instance, privatization is very anti-democratic. Can there be an infrastructure then that is not detrimental to the environment? Or is there something inherent in our thinking about infrastructures in general that makes them environmentally destructive? I think that's a really good question. I mean, obviously, we are all going to need clean water. We ob obviously need to um, have schools, right? Uh, we need healthcare, um, and uh, we need infrastructures that allow for us to flourish. Um, and I think that all of these things come with a, with, uh, a certain uh, set of benefits for some, certain set of uh, harms for others. And we have to, I think there has to be uh, considered discussion um, over who benefits and who's harmed. And it has to, and there has to be a considered discussion about whether the benefits from a particular infrastructure will actually, in the end, result in long-term environmental devastations, long-term costs to the public that, in the end, are actually make the current, the short-term benefits not worthwhile. Um, and that I, I do think that for really large-scale infrastructures, that kind of a democratic consultation is absolutely necessary can't be a top-down process. So Biden has uh, proposed a number of new visions for what government should be doing, not just on infrastructure. You mentioned infrastructure earlier in the show, but he's also talked about expanding the social safety net, having a more robust welfare state, um, providing greater subsidies for things like child care, uh, paid family leave, etc. And, um, you know, I think my own politics are that I think these are worthwhile initiatives and for the most part. But to the extent that the conversation has been about, oh, Biden is presenting a new vision of government, one in which it's more, you know, New Deal-like or more great society-like or bringing us back to the pre-Reagan era where uh, big government could be a solution and not just the problem. Um, I think that's only kind of half true in the sense that there is a lot of popular support for um, a, a more robust role for government for the shared benefits of more generous government services, but not so much robust support for the shared sacrifice or at least shared financial responsibility for paying for those kinds of, um, you know, expansions of government. At least that's the calculation that Biden mm -hmm. seems to be making because he has restricted um, the pay fors. And he said that he wants to pay for the things he wants to do, or at least partially. He's restricted that to corporations and the wealthy. And my own view is that, yes, corporations and high-income households should be paying more in taxes. Uh, they've gotten a lot of tax cuts over the years, and inequality has grown. So those two things combined suggest that they're, you know, shouldering less of the burden than they could. 
But if you look at the magnitude of the kinds of things that Biden wants to do, it's going to be really hard to actually fund all of these things solely on the back of higher taxes for the wealthy. So, for example, Obama defined wealthy, you say, for tax rate purposes as $250,000 a year or more. Biden defines it at $400,000. You know we can get lots of calls from families raising kids who'll say, yeah, I'm doing well at $250,000, but I'm upper middle class, not rich in New York or New Jersey or Connecticut or San Francisco or L.A.'s cost of living. What would you say to them? Well, look, it it is true that it's more expensive in New York uh, or in San Francisco or other places with a high cost of living. But Objectively speaking, those people are still towards the top of the income distribution, even in those places. There is a fraction of people who make a ton more money. So, you know, if you're comparing yourself to the Joneses, um, if the Joneses around you are hedge funders, you're not going to feel as rich. But that's you could just look at the data. You know, it, that that's the case. And, and I think the argument that I would like to hear Biden making essentially is that um, these programs are valuable and we will make sure that the very high income people and uh, corporations pay their fair share, which we don't think that they've been doing, et cetera. But we should all be invested in the financial success of these programs. And if that we want if we want to to have a welfare state um, that looks more like those in Scandinavia, say, you you look at how their tax system works. And in those places, in, in Sweden, in Denmark, it's not just that the tax rates are higher, but they're much more broader based, that even the middle class uh, pays higher tax rates there than they do here. The middle class here actually pays relatively low tax rates compared to uh, many other industrialized countries. So, you know, that's that's the trade-off that we're making. If you want more government services, yes, uh, make sure that high-income people, that the very highest-income people pay their fair share, but people at the $200,000 mark, the $250,000 mark, maybe even the $150,000 mark, they will probably need to foot some of the bill as well uh, through some broader base taxes. And that doesn't necessarily even mean um, income taxes, right? I mean, there are, other, there, there are other reasons why imposing this constraint is probably a bad policy move, not just for revenue, including that, for example, if we really want to get serious about climate change, there's almost uni- uh, unanimous support for uh, among economists for the idea of a carbon tax as the most effective way um, to reorient our economy towards more climate-friendly technologies. And if you say nobody who's making under $400,000 can pay a dollar more in taxes, you've effectively ruled out uh, a carbon tax or even a gas tax, which the, the Biden administration has said that they're they're not considering right now, even though that w- did have bipartisan support and has funded infrastructure in the past, still does. Um, so I think there are a lot of reasons to say, look, um, we're all in this together. Uh, we should still have a progressive tax system. But if you want a more robust government, you're going to have to pitch in a little bit more. I know you don't feel rich. But <laughs> that's mm-hmm. that's just how the math works out. You know, there are just too many constraints to satisfy. Otherwise, you can say, OK, maybe we'll ju- we just won't pay for it. And that may be where we end up. But as I said, the Biden administration, I think, to its credit, has said we are going to try to pay for these things. All right. And what about corporate taxes? Biden is trying to be a moderate here, too, by his lights. 
Trump lowered the corporate tax rate from 35% to 21%. Biden would bring it back halfway to 28% and add what he calls a corporate minimum tax and a tax on overseas profits. What do you think of the corporate tax changes that he's proposing? I think as a policy matter and a political matter, these are they're pretty strong cases uh, for doing this. Uh, the statutory tax rate before was probably too high, but there were a lot the statutory tax rate, meaning what was what what the book said <laughs> um, corporations had to pay at 35 percent. That was higher than what other that than what uh, companies in other countries pay. However, there are so many loopholes and deductions and complications in the tax code that their effective tax rate was actually much lower than that. Um, and I think there was some value to bringing down the statutory tax rate and broadening the base, simplifying it. Unfortunately, uh, in my view, the uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act under President, former President Trump lower the rate, but didn't really do much in the way of base broadening. Um, I think there's value to to bringing that rate up, um, ideally doing some sort of simplification. And, you know, as, as the Biden folks have argued, um, the rate that Trump delivered was actually lower than a lot of companies were even asking for. So maybe there's some happy middle ground here. Um, and, and as I said, I mean, this is, you know, they're not just sort of like revenue reasons for doing this. I, I'm not terribly worried about this scaremongering from Republican politicians that if you raise the corporate tax rate, you know, that'll destroy jobs, et cetera. Um, I think the evidence on that is not particularly strong. Um, you know, at least within the range of tax rates that we're talking about here. But besides the policy merits, uh, politically, it is definitely a slam dunk. Um, as I said, the idea of raising taxes on higher income people and corporations is extremely popular, has long been extremely popular. This is true even among Republican, Republican voters, not Republican politicians, of course. Um, so, you know, I think that that is uh, a fair place to begin to pay for, uh, you know, for, for many of these initiatives, even if I think Ultimately, if we're going to make a more permanent structural change to the role of government, it will probably require, um, you know, a value-added tax or some other broader-based tax system. Tell us about the AAIA introduced by James Clyburn and Amy Klobuchar. What would it do and why do you think it's needed? You know, I think sometimes when we talk about the digital divide, we tend to think it's like a game of perpetual catch-up and we'll, and we'll never get there. And, I, you know, I think to your quote in 2001, that that is kind of the understanding of the infrastructure and the technology at that time. You fast forward to today it is pretty clear there is one unifying medium, one type of infrastructure that's unifying all of the technologies so that if you build out this one infrastructure, you will have access to the whole range of 21st century technologies for decades, and that's fiber optic. The AAIA, the Accessible Affordable Internet Act, essentially creates a federal program at the size and scale of our electrification effort from the 20s and 30s, where we simply just said, it's just unconscionable to have anyone not connected to the electrical grid. It's, it's unconscionable to have someone not connected to a 21st century infrastructure. 
and spend the requisite dollar amount, around $90 plus billion, which is what you would need for a, a nationwide solution for all corners of the country, with almost no exception. And if you build fiber and fiber optics, you enable things like high-speed wireless, you enable things like the SpaceX, the Starlink, the orbit satellites, you enable gigabit internet connections at homes and businesses. All of those things come through the exact same infrastructure. And it's just important for the policy in this space where we're deciding how to spend infrastructure dollars, like we build the roads and whatnot, to basically go head forth in that. And that kind of actually puts America in a place where we're on the same pace with Europe and China. Both areas of the world have adopted essentially a fiber standard for their infrastructure or pushing it to all people, China being way ahead of everyone at this point. And we don't play catch up now so that in five years, it'll be a wash and we'll be caught up essentially. We will see some pretty massive differences about internet access globally, as well as here at home, where your high income users have cheap, fast internet areas where you have free, fast internet, and your low income rural will have really expensive old wires that are delivering really slow speeds at really high prices. Yeah, you have written and described that as digital redlining, which seems apt. I think as we Think of looking forward, though, we keep stumbling over this thing, at least U.S. corporate news media do keep presenting this conflict. And I would describe the lazily the standard corporate media frame as there's social justice that some of us might want, but that's versus the rigors of market capitalism, which push come to shove, we all really agree are best. And it's this gets thrown up again and again. And so not for nothing, but there's not and I don't even want to concede it, but there's not a conflict with profit-making here necessarily, is there, when we talk about fiber? No, not at all. For I would say more than two-thirds of the country. You can do it commercially in a commercially feasible way uh, so long as the financing is made available to, to build and there's players that are willing to build. And I think there's actually lots of local businesses that are willing to take on that challenge. But what the Accessible Affordable Internet Act does is it embraces all the models. And the model that this country desperately needs to really bolster is the public model of broadband, meaning local cooperatives, school districts, local governments. There has to be a public sector version of access in lots of parts of this country, particularly rural markets, simply because you cannot build this infrastructure with purely with a for-profit mindset. You have to look at it as a, what is the thing that will develop our local economy benefits lots of other for-profit entities, right? All the local businesses, agriculture, retail, you name it. But the government has to start looking at this like the road and allowing commerce to flow over those roads. And if we don't build the roads, right, the, the internet infrastructure road, if you will, you actually stifle private sector activity. And so there's a real partnership to be had between government and people of all walks of life. And it really is the public model of broadband that is underutilized in this country. But this bill, not only does it make the money available to make that a possibility in lots of places, but it also, what the word is, preempts states that have banned local governments from building their own infrastructure. All those states that have done that did that at the behest of the cable lobby, who basically argued, oh, if you let the public sector invest in this infrastructure, it'll drive up private investment. And that's an absurd argument because we're in 2021 now. If the private sector has not invested today, at this point, they're never coming. And so it's just a dynamic where, you know, I think when they made those arguments 15 years ago, you can believe it because these new networks were just starting. You had Google building fiber networks, all sorts of activity starting around 2005. 
But we're in 2021. If they haven't built out that 21st century infrastructure, and at most it takes maybe five years to get to, to where you want to go, they're not coming. And it's time to really start embracing local models to solve our own problems. Well, let me just ask you, finally, it sounds as though it's very much a question of who's at the table as decisions are made. Is there change to be fought for there? Because, you know, I I hear these ideas, but if no one's in the room except industry, when things are being decided, then that's part of the problem. So where do you see changes being made maybe to the decision-making process here that could be helpful? So I think as a first matter, we, we need a federal program, right? And and we need states to have their own programs that bolster public models along with local private. I mean, local private is very different than your big national players. Your AT&T, Comcast, and Verizon of the world really do neglect these communities versus, you know, someone who lives in the township themselves. They are more willing to work with people to figure out how to get everyone connected. And they're just motivated just simply because they live among you. I think the first step for people is to make sure they contact the congressperson and their senator to tell them to support James Clyburn's Accessible Affordable Internet Act, because we have to get that out of the Congress. And the danger here is we are talking about a program that will connect everyone to a 21st century infrastructure. Who's going to be the opposition? It's going to be the companies who have built the 20th century infrastructure, right, the slow, expensive stuff by today's standards who absolutely do not want to be replaced, right? Like They will do everything they can to prevent progress here. And we have to just kind of keep every legislator in line and in supportive of forward-thinking infrastructure plans because there's lots of ways you could spend money but don't make progress. And I suspect the industry, you know, primarily led by the cable industry, will do everything they can to, to curtail or hinder or inhibit real progress in this space. The digital divide is a choice, and it can be ended with concrete, forward-thinking programs of this size and focus and scale. But that's up to us through channeling it through our representation and our representatives to, to hear the people's voice. As you may have heard us announce in the previous episode, we're having a live event. Best of left, myself... I am partnering with our good friend, Dr. Roger Ray, who you hear give his uh, progressive faith sermons from time to time on this show. And we're holding a progressive colloquy. It's happening May 10th at 8 p.m. Eastern, the one true time zone. Everyone else can do the math. Even Roger, he'll be calling in from Missouri. So the breakdown, as we imagine it, subject to change, is that Roger and I will be having a featured discussion. Imagine us being on stage. And we're going to be talking about various aspects of community and what that means. Then we're going to open it up for question and answer. People are going to be able to metaphorically stand up from the audience and ask their question in front of the group or send in their questions via, you know, a little text chat. And then completely optional to everyone in the audience. You don't have to take part, but what we think will be fun breakout groups for small group discussion. And we're able to do this because I found this platform that is trying to duplicate the experience of attending a sort of ballroom event where first you watch speakers on a stage, but you also are given time to talk with other people at your table, but, a, you know, a limited number, you know, six, eight people, something like that around a table. Because the problem with meetings on Zoom that exceed about a half a dozen people is that it's too big of a group for everyone to meaningfully participate. And I think that this is going to solve that problem. 
you can do not just the table discussions, there's even an opportunity to do one-on-one conversations, like speed networking, if you like. Again, totally optional. So you can sit at a metaphorical table and chat with a small group of literal humans. You can metaphorically get up and find a new table, if you like. You could meet someone who you want to talk with longer and metaphorically get up together and go find a private table to continue your discussion, if you like. The options are really much more robust than anything I've seen like this before. So uh, we're thinking that after our talk and the Q&As, Roger and I are going to metaphorically walk around the room and join tables so that we can talk with as many people as possible, but in small group settings. It's an absolute experiment, but we think it's going to be a lot of fun because, first and foremost, we can promise that you will definitely not end up in a video chat with two dozen people, only three of whom are talking over the din of background noise. A description, by the way, that defines my personal nightmare. Humans are made to connect among small groups. So only when I found that that might be possible in the virtual world of the internet did I think it was worth giving this a try. So again, that's May 10th, 8 p.m. Eastern. Everyone else do your math. A link for details is in the show notes or go to bestofleft.com slash live where you can register right now entirely for free to be reminded when the event is actually happening. An infrastructure or the roads, the highways, the harbors, the train systems, all of the basics that hold up any economy. And by all accounts, by engineers, by economists, by specialists, the infrastructure of the United States is in terrible shape. Far worse than in many, many other countries less wealthy than the United States. In short, our infrastructure, roads, highways, bridges, all of that, have been neglected. And I'll come back and talk about why. But the Biden administration wants to be patted on the back because it has this dramatic program of $2 billion. We are not, the president said, merely tinkering around the edges of the problem. We're meeting it head on. My response, no, you're not. You are tinkering. Just what you say you aren't doing is what you are doing. And that has become a bad habit of our leading politicians, as you've probably noticed. To not tinker around the edges would be to make basic structural changes. For example, Mr. Biden refers to FDR. Yes, FDR back in the 30s did make structural changes. They weren't enough. They didn't solve our problems because that's why we're in the soup now. But compared to what Mr. Biden is doing, they are indeed dramatic. Let's remember, created a social security system we never had before an unemployment compensation system we never had before, a minimum wage in this country we never had before, and a federal jobs program that put 15 million unemployed people to work, giving them a decent income. Mr. Biden isn't doing anything like that. Social Security is no longer support for people of the sort it was imagined and hoped it would be. So far, he's failed 
to get anywhere on the minimum wage. And he doesn't even discuss a federal jobs program. And moreover, Roosevelt not only did that, he made corporations and the rich pay for it with a dramatic increase in rates of taxation on them. In contrast, Mr. Biden proposes only to raise the corporate tax rate halfway up to what Mr. Trump reduced. Trump dropped it from 35 to 21 percent. Mr. Biden proposes to bring it back only to 28 percent, thereby leaving the business class with half of what Trump gave them, not even challenged by the Democratic Party. What would you have to do, Mr. Biden, if you really wanted to deal with these issues? Well, here's, here's what we would do. First of all, a la FDR, create a federal jobs program. Give the 20 million Americans right now that are officially unemployed with another 5 to 10 million that have left the labor force. So we're talking 25 to 30 million people. Give them a job, Mr. Biden. You're silent on that. What could they do? Put them to work, helping to vaccinate, helping to test, helping to really manage this disease far better than Mr. Trump ever did and far better than you have so far been able to do. Here's another one. Do something for the climate that is so urgent, you say, in your mind. Millions of people committed to climate control, offsetting the damage of environmental degradation. There would be a dramatic job for people, plus a serious attack on the climate problems we have. Provide daycare for the millions of people who cannot work unless they get it. Provide real programs for the elderly becoming a larger part of our society. These would be structural changes and make them permanent the way Mr. FDRs was able to do. Okay. And how would you pay for it? Come on, Mr. Biden, you kind of know. Raise the corporate tax. And if you're worried about impacting small business, make it a progressive corporate tax, like we have a progressive personal income tax. If you're a little business, you pay a little. If you're a middle-level business, you pay a middle-level. And if you're Mr. Bezos at Amazon, well, then you pay the high rate. Raise the rates. Raise them back to what they were in the 60s and 70s, not even beyond that. And that would raise the kind of money that would fund a serious structural program to update our infrastructure. None of that is being done. None of that is even being proposed. What you have is tinkering around the edges. And now, perhaps the most important issue of all. What Mr. Biden's program amounts to, classical democratic establishment policy, is to throw an enormous amount of money, but let's be clear at whom, to big corporations and to governments. And what are they supposed to do? Repair the road, restore the bridge, improve uh, electric charging stations, and build them for the new generation of electric cars. And you know, when you give money to big corporations and you give money to political leaders who in turn will use it to give contracts to, you guessed it, big corporations, here's what you get. 
those corporations will use the money to pay out fat dividends to their shareholders, fat pay packages to their CEO. You know the story. We've been doing that for 200 years, and we have the grotesque inequality we see around us. For 75 years since the end of World War II, the United States gave foreign aid to poor countries in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. Same kind of throwing money. And where did it go? To the corporations and the governments in those societies who took care of themselves first and never solved their poverty programs. Sure, a road got built here, a bridge got restored over there, and that will happen here too, and that's better than nothing. But you're not changing this basic economy because you're putting the money in the hands of the people who have shown us for 200 years here and for at least 50 in the rest of the world that they're going to take that money and reproduce the unequal social systems they preside over. Don't do that. And if you do it, admit what you are doing. You are reproducing this system of inequality in income, inequality in wealth, and inequality in the power to shape what's going on. You're keeping the system going. That's your top priority, and that's what shows in the program you're doing. Last point on this infrastructure. Look, Mr. Biden is not going to get even the profit tax rate increase from 21%, which is where Trump left it, to 28 So he's going to end up borrowing. And let me be real clear with you what government borrowing, whether it's for the infrastructure or for treating COVID or for anything else. Let me explain to you, please, that deficit spending is an enormous gift to corporations and the rich. Here's how it works. You could pay for the solution to our COVID problem or this infrastructure program by taxing corporations and the rich. They have the money to do it and you have the political power to tax it. If you don't tax them, then you're going to have to borrow the money if you're going to get this done. And you know who you're going to borrow most of that money from? The corporations and the rich, because they will have the money to lend to the government. And you know why? Because the government didn't tax it from them. Look at it from the point of view of a corporation or rich people. Either the government taxes the money away and does these important social things, or it doesn't and instead comes to me, borrows the money, has to pay it back, and pays me interest while I wait. That's a no-brainer for corporations and the rich. For them, deficits are a fancy way of giving them a monstrous gift. We've just heard clips today, starting with the broadcast giving an overview of Biden's plan. The Brian Lehrer Show discussed wealth redistribution and AOC's criticism based on climate mitigation. Jim Hightower, on his radio lowdown, advocated that America learn how to go big once again. 
This is Hell discussed making our infrastructure crisis-proof and the need to democratize our institutions. The Brian Lehrer Show talked about the need for tax increases. Counterspin looked at the long-term benefits of fiber optic cable and the digital divide. And Richard Wolf on Economic Update challenged Biden to stop tinkering around the edges of the fundamental change we need. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from the broadcast explaining the global minimum tax, and This Is Hell laid out the importance of campaigns against the powerful interests that are fighting to maintain the status quo. For non-members, those bonus clips are linked in the show notes and are part of the transcript for today's episode, so you can still find them if you want to make the effort. But to hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com support, or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we'll hear from you. Uh, hey, Jay, this is Craig from Ohio. I'm calling again about the issue of cash payments in lieu of social programs. And I had a feeling when I called before on this topic that I didn't get my main point off clearly. I think if I can try and make this concise, my main concern is that in the United States, where we have over the past half century systematically undermined social services, the community services that were the hallmark of the New Deal, at least for the white part of the country, have been cut back. And since they were so systematically undermined, we are now looking for alternative solutions. And so lately, and this was reflected on the episode that you made, The left has been arguing for policies that I think of as more libertarian, more traditionally right-wing solutions, like UBI, like a minimum wage, and like direct payments to citizens. Now, I should say, if I were in Congress, I would vote for those things. I would vote to raise the minimum wage. I would try and get money into the hands of parents as efficiently as possible. So I'm not necessarily opposed to those things. What I'm worried about is those things may be replacements for the kinds of broad-based social services that we, at one point in our history, relied more on. So I, I think that's my main complaint. We're not Canada, Germany, this is the United States where we've suffered under this uh, right-wing propaganda for decades at this point now. So I would just like to hear it reflected in left media more that we should be thinking more broadly rather than just payments, cash, even though those are effective tools at this point in time to get people out of poverty and reduce suffering. I would like to see us talking more about things like postal banking, guaranteed jobs, that sort of thing. So, all right. I think that, I think that gets at it. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Hi, it's Jonathan from New York City. As I commented last week, I think we should accept that even though the Chinese oppression of the Uyghurs is appalling, 
the U.S. has very limited influence to stop it. And recognizing that fact is healthy. I think you generally agreed. But I should have emphasized the flip side of that. There are places where atrocities are taking place that the U.S. does have influence over, or even where we are causing harm, and can improve the situation simply by stopping making things worse. We should use our influence to end the war in Yemen. The United Nations has called this the worst humanitarian crisis going on today, and the U.S. is complicit. Biden has taken some steps, but not nearly enough. We need to stop arms sales to Saudi Arabia and the UAE and why not the rest of the world while we are at it. The Senate just allowed sales of fighter jets and drones to the UAE on a close vote. With better mobilization we could have stopped them. We can return to the Iran nuclear deal. We can reduce the defense budget. All of these changes would be good and would improve our international reputation. While we are fairly powerless to stop the Chinese oppression of the Uyghurs, There are many areas where progressives should be working to change U.S. policy and have a realistic chance of winning. This is a critical time before the Biden administration has fully committed to a course of action. The military-industrial complex is working to push us in the wrong direction so progressives need to organize and pressure Biden to do the right thing. Also, I'm looking forward to the live format with you and Dr. Ray and to connect with other listeners. I love the show. Stay active. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com, which is exactly what Jonathan did. He he wrote in that message and I turned it into audio. He, He signed off with stay active, which is not normal people often say uh, stay awesome it accidentally became a catchphrase for the show uh, for those who don't know it harkens back to the first job i had where i had to write semi-professional sounding emails and i learned then that the sort of standard was to sign off best comma and your name and i thought i don't even know what that means best wishes you know but that's too frilly so we just shorten it to best like anyway it sounded odd to me so i came up with my own sign off for my professional emails well semi-professional and i started signing emails stay awesome and it just sort of stuck with me from there so it's it's not even really a catchphrase of mine it's just a email signature and, and listeners i think caught on to it Anyway, it's neither here nor there. So my guess is that that was a typo or something to uh, tell me to stay active, but quite a applicable one. I-, I had to buy pants recently that were two sizes larger than I've been buying for the last you know couple of decades. So I-, I will heed that advice to stay active. But now, as promised at the top of the show, I am going to revolutionize your understanding of the propaganda of Fox News. First... Let's harken back to the old paradigm. Fox News loves to ask questions, as demonstrated in this clip from The Daily Show from 2006. Then there's Fox News. It uses its question marks in a more focused way, asking queries like, have Dems forgot the lessons of 9-11? Just a question. (laughs) Technically, that's not really a question mark at the end of that. 
It's a similar punctuation symbol known as the Cavuto. It's named for the journalist who pioneered its use in sentences like, why is Russia doing business with nations that hate America? Why is America more concerned about the economy than terror? Media preaching hate in the Mideast? Is the liberal media helping to fuel terror? Cavuto's not saying these things. He's just asking, like, is your mother a whore? <laughs> what? I'm not saying she's a whore. I'm just wondering out loud if she is a whore. All I'm saying is reasonable people who have banged your mother for money can disagree. By the way, I do not want to give you the impression that Cavuto is biased. He's not. He doesn't just use the question mark on Democrats, but Republicans too. Like, number one president on Mideast Matters, George W. Bush? Or the best president? I know the answer to that one. Yes, Fox has figured out that by simply putting a question mark at the end of something, you can say f***ing anything. As I said, that was 2006, so it was a couple years later, they were still up to their old tricks when they asked the question that, to me, will go down in infamy. No, not what race is Santa Claus. That, they were willing to say with a declarative statement. But this question that they asked after Barack and Michelle Obama celebrated having won the 2008 election with a completely innocuous fist bump. A fist bump, a pound, a terrorist fist jab, the gesture everyone seems to interpret differently. And so we were off to the races of, do we have a terrorist in the White House for eight years? We're calling that the traditional Fox News question style. Here's where the paradigm takes a shift. They still love asking questions, but Tucker Carlson has put his own entirely new spin on the concept. And I got to say, I really appreciate what he does for the ingenuity that he's bringing to his propaganda model. So here's a series of questions that Tucker has asked, very representative of the types of questions that he likes to pose to kickstart his conversations or his commentaries. What is hate speech? What is a white supremacist? What precisely is privilege? What exactly is a nationalist? What is a fascist? What exactly is this disinformation? You hear that series of questions, and they could be segments that we would play on this show, because we would very much like to answer those exact questions to inform people. I could answer all those questions. There are thousands of people who Tucker could invite on his show who could explain those concepts even better than me. But that is not the point. Tucker asks them as rhetorical questions because he doesn't want answers. He wants his audience to believe that there are no answers. He asks the questions dripping with doubt and then goes on to explain that no one has ever been able to answer them sufficiently. So the question mark of old Fox News was there to implant new unfounded ideas into viewers' heads. The new 
rhetorical question technique is designed to convince people to dismiss and remove ideas from their minds entirely, lest they make the grave mistake of actually trying to get real answers to those questions and learning that the concepts in question are based on very real, though certainly uncomfortable, aspects of our history and culture. But the good news of all of this is that the old paradigm assumed a relatively even ideological playing field, and so they needed to implant their usually conspiratorial ideas into people, and that was their strategy. Now, the left's interpretation of the world, which is willing to take deep and nuanced looks at history and society in order to form a more complete picture of the structures of our society, since that is increasingly becoming the dominant understanding of reality, that means that Fox can't just play offense with their baseless ideas as they used to. They now have to play defense by directly trying to undermine the ideas that the left is putting forward. I mean, Fox's old slogan was fair and balanced because it was sort of a cover to legitimize their propaganda. Their new slogan could very well be question everything, but learn nothing. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work that goes into the show. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio Ben, Dan, and Ken for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work in our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic design bonus show co-hosting and so on and of course thanks to all those who become a member or purchase gift memberships at bestofleft.com support as that is absolutely how the program survives and now everyone can earn rewards and support the show just by telling everyone you know about it using our referomatic program at bestofleft.com refer I absolutely think that you'll like that for details on the show itself including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.